Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. I'm A.B. Stoddard, associate editor and columnist with Real Clear Politics, and I have the honor of sitting in this week for Mona Charon. I'm joined by regular panelists Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, along with John Ward of Yahoo News and Tom Nichols, contributor to The Atlantic and professor emeritus at the Naval War College. Welcome, one and all. Today, we unfortunately have to begin with the biggest and most consequential news riling the country right now, which is another mass shooting in fewer than 14 days that took the lives of 19 children. We are despondent, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, because we feel heartbroken and powerless. It's really hard to have these conversations, but I know that I have the best people at the table today to provide a measured and fair and informative discussion about this. We are in a place right now where we are not looking at a standoff between the two parties. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has decided to let some bipartisan talks proceed. There's going to be some discussion about the areas of potential common ground, which are red flag laws, expanded background checks. Obviously, I think the Democrats would like age minimums for gun purchases. We don't know at this point what is really the most fertile ground, but we know that Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who obviously experienced very closely the massacre at Newtown and has been a leader on this issue ever since, and he is at the table with uh, multiple Republicans, I'm really heartened to say that um, Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana and John Cornyn of Texas and Mitt Romney of Utah and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Rob Portman of Ohio and Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania and Susan Collins of Maine and Roy Blunt of Missouri are all in the efforts at some level. And Mitch McConnell has blessed some kind of discussions. He had a conversation with Senator Cornyn about this. So that's better than a big show vote and shouting match. They've all left for a recess and motivation and momentum can dissipate while they're home for a break. But it sounds like people are earnestly coming together in some way. So I want to just mention the polling has moved in the last few years towards restrictions on gun purchases and on background checks. And there's really interesting polling out of Morning Consult requiring background checks for all gun sales, 88% strongly, somewhat support. So the net approval is 80, creating a national database with information about each gun sale, 75% strongly or somewhat support with a net approval of 57, banning assault weapons, 67%, somewhat or strongly with a net approval of plus 42, and on and on. These are really very solid numbers with regards to sort of the same proposals that people have been banding about for a long time. John, you have a new piece up on Yahoo about the Supreme Court taking up a case out of New York that will debate the question of the right to bear arms in public places. As Democrats try to convince Republicans to compromise on this issue, the most likely decision by the conservative court could lead to a proliferation of guns in our most populous places. And this is likely not what the majority of Americans, I believe, want or expect. Should Democrats have been talking about this case earlier, and are they talking about it now? 
Well, I mean, they're going to be talking about it. I think when it comes to this decision, and granted, I'm not a Supreme Court reporter, so take everything I say about this with something of a grain of salt here. But my understanding is that this decision is really about the court being a 6-3 conservative majority. And it's an example of the timing of the court really being bad for the court's reputation with most of the country. But yeah, it's going to probably result in some increase in the amount of states that have to allow concealed carry, open carry, some form of carrying your weapon in public. And it's going to add to the outrage about it, no doubt about it. Democrats can rail all they want about this, but I think their efforts are going to be better directed towards whatever legislation they can pass. Uh, It might make some political hay for them in the midterms, even though I still don't think any of this will probably move the needle more than pocketbook issues and inflation. But I think most people, even though you know we're writing articles about it, most people will not be aware of this until the decision comes out in the next few weeks. It's such a lesson, I think, from the leak draft opinion on Roe that the Democrats, you know, the leadership of the party, they know these things are coming and they don't seem at all willing to prepare voters for it or try to energize voters around it. Linda, do you believe that there is a reasonable, gettable compromise that 10 Republican senators can support? I know there's a lot of focus from the Republican side about hardening schools, but I would like to insist that not all shootings and massacres take place at schools. And it's really hard to envision for me asking church elders and ministers and rabbis, let alone teachers, while they are teaching or ministering to worshipers and holding services to be prepared to face down shooters. It doesn't seem like a reasonable response, but I really like your opinion on what you think a compromise could look like. And isn't this no longer the power really of the NRA, but the power of the base voter within the party that makes Republicans continue to hold the line? Well, first of all, let me say that the answer that Republicans en masse always have to these kinds of incidents is what we need is more guns in more hands, and maybe then we'll be able to stop You know, there was a lot of talk by Governor Abbott at that press conference and by other Republicans about mental health. Gee, I'm really glad to know that my fellow conservatives are so very interested in mental health services. I'm sure they want to make sure that those mental health services become much more generously funded and that we make them much more widely available. You know what's crazy in America is the kind of crazy gun culture we have. And I say that as somebody who owns two revolvers. I have owned them since the early 1970s. I have owned them for what I consider a good reason. I have lived in very rural areas where the police were at least 40, 45 minutes away. And I've lived where mountain lions roamed and I had bear in my backyard nearly every morning. So I think perfectly fine to own guns. I'm not opposed to owning guns. But in what world is it normal for an 18-year-old boy within days of his birthday to march into a store and buy a weapon, an AR-15, which is primarily designed to kill people 
and is primarily designed as a weapon of war. You know, it's not used to shoot deer. You have to modify the AR-15 if you want to use it, you know, in hunting because the magazine has 30 rounds of ammunition routinely in it. And that would be considered very unsportsmanly. You'd have to be a pretty damn bad shot if it took 30 uh, rounds uh, to fell a deer. So it's not a sporting device. It's a weapon that was designed after a weapon designed for war. So he walks in and he buys an AR-15. The next day he comes back and he buys 375 rounds of ammunition. And then a day or two later, he walks back in and buys a second AR-15. Is it not crazy that the person who sold him those guns did not think, I wonder what's going on here. Uh, Maybe I ought to give the sheriff a call. You know, maybe there's something a little funny about this. But in a culture that adores guns, in which guns are an icon of masculinity, that doesn't happen. So when you talk about compromises, I think background checks and tightening background checks is a very good idea. The American public supports it. Maybe we'll see movement there. But I think we have to sort of broaden the concept of red flags. It can't just be that when you run the name through the database, it comes out that the person was institutionalized. There ought to be sort of common sense red flags. People ought to be encouraged as they were during, you know, all of the hysteria after 9-11. See something, say something. If you see something that doesn't look right to you, you have an obligation to let the authorities know. And I think they have an obligation to follow up on it. But I don't hear anybody on either the left or the right, talking about that kind of modification. And again, owning revolvers, yeah, he could have killed those kids with revolvers, but he would have gotten six rounds out and he would have had to stop to reload. And during that time, lives would have been saved. So we've got to be serious about this. And we've got to confront the fact that the rest of the world does not see the number of mass killings that we do. I'm here in Ireland right now. They had 39 homicides in the entire country last year. And it is unique to America that we see the proliferation of guns and the use of guns in acts of violence, both in cities during crime, but also these mass shooting incidents. Linda, I couldn't agree with you more. And I so appreciate you as a gun owner walking through uh, this fiction that ARs are necessary for gun-owning hunters and for responsible gun owners to have and sell to 18-year-olds. It's just really, really hard to swallow. And it's really hard to hear some of the comments from Republicans in the last few days, like Senator Tuberville, who said, okay, I'm willing to say I'm very sorry it happened, but it's not the guns. We've always had guns and we always will. Tom, this whole question about the things coming out of Republicans and their proposals. I agree that we have a substance abuse problem. I agree that people in this country are in a mental health crisis and that our youth are just swallowing poison online night and day that radicalizes them. While we drown in guns, there are 60 million more guns in this country than there are people, and that fatherlessness and broken families are all issues. As Linda notes, we don't know that Republicans have been working really hard to mitigate these crises and problems and to fund solutions. 
in between mass shootings that add up to the very ingredients they say create mass shootings. But where do you see this going in terms of the fact that there is a fetish, that Republicans, there was some report out that 100 Republican politicians have used guns in their campaign ads this year. Do you think that there's any way that any of them can talk across the aisle about this and get at some kind of a compromise? I know those people, those Republicans I mentioned, Tom, are not going to say we need to ban assault weapons. They're not even going to say they need to be locked up at a target practice place. I mean, we know that it's going to be minimal, but where do you see the debate at this point on compromise? Because there is so much proud extreme rhetoric coming out of Republicans. So I know there's not a lot of room for the ones who are at the table to compromise on, but what do you think that the possibilities are for some kind of middle ground that Democrats could get 10 senators to okay this year? I'm over in the pessimist corner with the bulwarks, Jonathan Last, who said this will happen again. There's not going to be any progress. There are too many guns already in circulation. Um, The gun culture is out of control. You know, can you change that culture over the course of 10 or 20 or 25 years? Maybe, but you have to want to. And I think the interlock here, the really dangerous thing is that the Republican Party, and I've said this many times, is a party that believes in nothing. It believes in power. It believes in propagating its own re-election purely for the sake of its people being in office. When that threads along a primary and a voter base that doesn't just like guns, but as you said, a fetish, an obsession, a weirdness, a weird fixation, not just on guns, but on some of the most powerful guns. I mean, like Linda, I grew up around guns. My dad and my brother were both police officers. We had guns in the house. I saw guns all over the place in my neighborhood. Everybody had you know, shotguns and pistols and World War II vets and Korean Vietnam vets um, who had weapons. But it wasn't this kind of creepy fascination with the black guns, you know, with the shiny weapons that are made to kill human beings. When those two things are locked in together, there is no incentive whatsoever for the Republicans to deal on anything. And there is every incentive for them to say, let's own the libs again and show how we're not going to compromise on anything. And so, you know, where's the middle ground? I don't know. You might get 10 senators to agree to some kind of an enhanced background check that isn't going to stop a guy like the shooter in Texas. I'll add, Linda mentioned red flag laws. David French actually is one of the few people that stepped out and said, more red flag laws. But there again, you're going to run into people saying, this is a snitch culture. It's an informer culture. It's a surveillance state. And also you don't really have any protection for good Samaritans who are going to drop a dime on somebody and then potentially get sued or find themselves in some kind of legal hot waters. You know, until we change this culture, and I don't know how to do that because the minority that is rock solid for keeping things the way they are, are clustered efficiently in certain voting districts that then put a lock into the legislative process. It's not like they're spread out ineffectively throughout 50 states. This is a particular regional and political problem that then creates a structural lock on doing anything about it in the legislature. So that was all a long way of saying I'm really pessimistic, unfortunately. 
Ah, yes. Minority rule. Everything comes back to that. Tom, you're right. All right. Let's hold on for a minute. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. Summer is right around the corner and Genucel is celebrating early with their summer clearance sale. Now, save over 60% of Genucel's most popular package at genucel.com. Order today and get Genucel's dark spot corrector to visibly reduce those pesky dark sunspots free. Here's another Genucel success story from Cynthia H. in Arlington, Virginia. After using Genucel products, my husband said, you look young. Whatever you're doing is working. He didn't know about Genucel. I like the texture and not too strong of a smell. Their products are easy to use and fine for my sensitive skin. I've tried expensive products and Genucel is the best. Results are real. Millions of amazing Americans are in love. Genucel guarantees results or your money back. And sign up for Genucel's best-in-class rewards program at checkout for an extra 10% off your order and complimentary gift set. Go to genucel.com slash beg to differ for 60% off. Genucel.com slash beg to differ. Enter beg to differ at checkout for an extra 20% off. And right now, our most popular package includes Genucel's immediate effects for results in as little as 12 hours. Go to genucel.com slash beg to differ. That's G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash beg to differ. Okay, we're back. And John, I want to step back and look at the state of the Democrats riding a bunch of very frustrating failures in the first year and a couple months of the Biden administration and full control of the government. And then now this you know explosion going off about what the Supreme Court is going to rule on Roe. And then these two mass shootings, which brings the gun issue again to the fore. I find that they went through a succession of sort of self-inflicted wounds. And it really had a lot to do, I believe, with tactics and strategy. But I'm interested in your opinion because you are a deep thinker and you study this in depth. The BBB Build Back Better debacle was very extended and very, I thought, injurious to the entire party. It told voters that the Democrats couldn't get their act together and didn't know what they were doing. Then they said that there was this democracy emergency and they had to put voting rights legislation up on the Senate floor. They promised they were going to try to break the filibuster, which was never going to happen. The base was very disappointed in the outcome of voting rights. They held this ridiculous vote after the Roe draft opinion was leaked that got them nowhere. And on guns, it seems the only issue where they actually haven't, to me, overpromised, and they've sort of conceded that they're powerless. I thought it was interesting that Chuck Schumer, who I think often does things wrong, said, you know, we've just been burned before. He was finally being honest. I know their coalition, John, is broader and deeper than the Republicans, and it's hard to get to compromise. But do you see this mostly as a refusal, this kind of year and a half into the Democratic government, a refusal to reckon with math and margins? Or do you see other forces behind their habitual overpromising and then underdelivering? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about generally the Democratic Party's 
failure to govern through realism and instead to take the route of idealism. And, you know, this is basically the case in any age. It's going to take historians to really unpack the larger forces at work here. But I do think you can kind of look at it through one lens of the breakdown of, of political parties and institutional strength and the rise of sort of individual politicians as brands and activism. Because, you know, the Democratic Party is caught in this moment where Joe Biden was chosen as the nominee because the Democratic Party still has, you know, constituencies that are that are loyal to the party brand and are largely trusting of institutions. I'm thinking of, you know, black voters in South Carolina and to whatever degree labor is still influential, stuff like that. And so he, you know, he was chosen by the party as the only person who voters believe could defeat Donald Trump, but he's fairly ineffectual for the moment in terms of a lot of the public relations, bully pulpit type skills that are needed to move public opinion. And the momentum in politics in general is that the loudest voices and the most radical purest voices have the most influence. And so you have Chuck Schumer making decisions as Senate majority leader with the lingering threat of getting primaried by AOC sitting there, which doesn't really explain why he held that abortion vote, because he's not going to be primaried at this point. But I think it explains some of the dynamic earlier over the course of the Biden presidency. And so just like the Republican Party was fractured in 2016, by the dissolution of institutional strength that political parties in general are undergoing. I think you're seeing the Democratic Party's failure to act collectively in a coherent way towards a realistic goal happening in real time because of these larger forces, which are paired up with just the circumstances of history. Yeah, that's well said. It's just amazing what they saw coming and they sort of refused to grapple with, like, the voting restrictions passed in all these swing states by Republican legislatures, they knew that that was actually about election subversion and it was never about vote casting and access. It was always about vote counting and people cooking the books and stealing the election. But they kept talking about water bottles and how outrageous it was that there weren't enough drop boxes. Tom, you and I like to beat up on their tactics. Democrats have drowned the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is, I thought, a huge success in all their inability to come together on their social welfare spending. They have little to sell now to the middle and the right of their, at least their 2020 electorate, the people that crossed over to vote for Biden. Back to that Senate vote, I was stunned that instead of having what I thought should be a four-day vote-a-thon, first day, life of the mother, second day, rape, third day, incest, fourth day, a simple bill with Collins and Murkowski to codify Roe. And instead, they threw up a nine-month infanticide, all-abortion-anytime bill that Republicans could easily oppose. Literally, they have May and June. They have these two huge issues that in another world could galvanize fundraising, energy on the ground, get out the vote, blah, blah, blah. Do you think that they're going to be able to break through with anything because this uh, sort of the sentiment it's right for the midterms is like fixed by the end of June. It's easy to just swing in an underhand pitch and say, no, (laughs) because they're not, again, it's like they're constitutionally incapable of it. It's just hardwired into them. The abortion vote, you know, let, 
I share your feeling about this. This is about tactics. Let's leave aside how anybody feels about abortion for a moment. Let's look at this through the cold, you know, frosty eyes of political professionals. If we were advising any of the people involved, you could just hear Republican staffers saying, well, Senator, this is going to be a really tough vote unless the Democrats do something stupid and make it a single up or down vote on abortion at any time during nine months. And then somebody runs in and says, our prayers were answered. I mean, it's yeah. like there are times where you just think, is there a Republican mole inside the Democratic <laughs> caucus? You know, yeah. is this like an episode of the Americans where, you know, you find out the guy who's like the, the head of their messaging is, you know, was planted there 20 years ago for a moment like this. And, you know, I think there's two reasons for it. One is, and I've said many times, the Democrats have internalized the Republicans' criticisms of them. And that runs directly into the Democratic centrists are terrified of the fragility of their own coalition. And so they are just whipsawed. You know, they don't have the strength to be able to turn to their fringe or their left flank the way that the 1980s Republicans did, for example, in 1984, a story you know, that is legend among Republicans when Reagan's people were told that evangelicals were very upset with Ronald Reagan and he hadn't passed a law to stone homosexuals and outlaw adultery and, you know, all the other outlaw abortion and the Pledge of Allegiance and all that stuff. And basically a, a senior Reagan guy said, F them. What are they going to do? Vote for Mondale? No. You know, the Democrats are simply not capable of turning to their own people and saying, if you would rather reelect Donald Trump or, you know, Ron DeSantis or, you know, Herschel Walker one day as president, fine, then, you know, uh, vote and be damned. But they're not capable of doing that headbutt with their own people. But they are also afraid of the Republicans in a way that has become kind of neurotic. It's like, oh my God, if we have four days of these votes and the Republicans and then the footage and the speeches, look, do it. The Republicans are not 10 feet tall. And I think that there has kind of been a lack of confidence there among Democrats about what they're capable of doing. And I think that, and I'll just add one more thing. The Democrats need to understand the reason Republicans are so obsessed with minority rule and with tampering with elections and you know who counts the votes is because they know their ideas are unpopular. If only Democrats could embrace the understanding that Republican ideas are now unpopular as well, but they can't. And so they play this small ball, you know, where they try and kind of tiptoe around these issues and they just lose one opportunity after another. Messaging discipline does not exist in the Democratic Party. And I don't know what the solution to that is. I don't know if it's because you need a better DNC chair or stronger House Speaker or Senate Majority Leader. The president can't do it by himself. And I'm, I'll just put in a word for Joe Biden and say he's a little busy trying to prevent World War III right now. You know, I think the president's doing the best he can do, but it would be nice if he had some help from the rest of his party. A.B., if I can just break in real quick. I think, you know, when I was talking about the larger forces at work here, I think part of the problem for Democrats, probably in particular, maybe, is that they do have leadership that has been around for a long time, which has strengths to it. But we've undergone so many changes in terms of communications and technology over the last decade or two that I do think they need to have leadership that is younger, you know, which can kind of grapple in a forward thinking way with some of these challenges. There's no question. 
Okay, well, we're going to let Linda weigh in on the Democrats in a minute after we go to a pause here for a brief message. If you're like me, you share your home, not just with humans, but with animal friends. And while they're wonderful companions, they also have odors, they have dander, they have hair. Well, let me talk to you about Eden Pure Thunderstorm Air Purifiers. Their proven oxy technology quickly destroys viruses, odors, mold, and more. It cleans the air of allergy-causing particles so you can breathe easy again, and it freshens up your home. It gets rid of any odor, like litter boxes, trash cans, cigarette smoke, even dirty diapers and cooking smells. With over 200,000 thunderstorms sold, you know it works. You never have to breathe dirty air again. And there are no filters to buy. And it takes up no floor space. You just plug this unit into the wall. It's almost silent, so it's great for use in any room, really. You can use it in your bedroom. We do. And we also have one in the room where the cat's litter box is. And honestly, of course, I'm very diligent about cleaning the cat's litter box, but with the Eden Pure, you would never know it was there. Plus, all the units come with a six-foot USB cord, and so they are compact, great for traveling. You can use it in hotel rooms or wherever you might be going. So go to EdenPureDeals.com, enter the discount code MONA3 to save $200. That's three thunderstorm air purifiers for under $200. Shipping is free. Okay. So Linda, we know as we watched this anguish debate over Build Back Better that the progressive moderate divide has plagued the party ever since Donald Trump gave them two Senate seats in Georgia and the Senate majority in January of 2021. I know you were watching the runoff in Texas between pro-life Democrat Henry Cuellar who had the backing of the establishment and of his leadership, and progressive candidate Jessica Cisneros, who had the backing of Pramila Jayapal and AOC and the Progressive Caucus, and believed that the abortion issue would put her over the top, and it did not. How much do you see this divide worsening the Democrats' bad fortunes in the election this fall? Well, first of all, the election this fall is going to be on economic issues. If we continue to have this very, very high inflation and prices at the gas pump and at the grocery store continue to be high. Voters are going to blame President Biden, and by extension, they're going to be not happy with the Democrats. All of these other issues are going to be secondary issues. People vote their pocketbooks. Having said that, I do think that, you know, I'm perfectly willing to call out the crazies in the Republican Party. But there are plenty of crazies in the Democratic Party. And unfortunately, I just heard, I guess it was John, say maybe we need some younger Democratic leaders and maybe that would help. Well, not if they're going to be of the AOC variety, for goodness sakes. I mean, the Democrats have their fetishes as well. Republicans may have it about guns and church and a few other of their iconic issues. But the Democrats embrace very divisive ideas about things like critical race theory, transgenderism, you know, supporting the notion that children who are 
just entering puberty ought to be able to be given puberty blockers. Now, there are a lot of very controversial things that the Democrats do and that turn off people, not to mention defund the police, which they are going to wear around their neck as a badge of dishonor for the foreseeable future. So I think the Democrats have a problem as well. And it's more than Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden and others talking to their left fringe. There are going to be a lot of people talking about they have to be made to look more like the fringe characters they are. And by the way, what's happened in Texas with Mrs. Narrows possibly being able to overtake Henry Cuellar, who has, you know, his own problems. If that happens, I could see the Republican candidate in that 28th congressional district in Texas, Cassie Garcia, actually ending up winning the election. It could end up being a loss for the Democrats. Cassie Garcia worked for Ted Cruz. She's very personable. She's very attractive. She's also Hispanic. It's, of course, a very heavily Hispanic district. And as we saw in the 2020 election, large parts of southern Texas along the border, we had a large support for Donald Trump. You had him winning key areas in that state. So the Democrats have a problem as well. They have crazies in their party. They have divisive issues that they continue to try to shove down the throat of the American people who are very tolerant, but do not necessarily want to be proselytized and to be forced to accept ideas that are brand new and unproven and in many ways, I think, unscientific and be told that if they don't embrace those ideas, if they don't mouth the right words, that they must be bigots. So let's move on to the Republican primaries. The big dramatic showdowns have sort of come to an end, although there's certainly still time for some crazy because the Missouri primary comes up in August. But Trump was humiliated, Tom, in Georgia. He was not able, obviously, not to get David Perdue over the line to beat his top number one enemy, Brian Kemp, the sitting governor, but he couldn't elect Jody Heiss to steal the election in 2024 as Secretary of State. And Brad Raffensperger, who was dead man walking months ago, somehow pulls it out. You have the lieutenant governor in Idaho who he backed. She was taking on the, the governor. She got whooped. Of course, he backed Charles Herbster in Nebraska. He backs terrible candidates who grope people, so then they lose We know that two-thirds of the Ohio primary electorate opposed J.D. Vance, even though he won. So a lot of people are getting very excited that his influence is on the wane. He doesn't run the party and that the electorate is ready to move on and talk about the future. You get a lot of excited Republicans like Chris Christie talking that way. When we know that Trump for the time being controls the RNC, and while he's definitely separated from the party, he can hardly be called a leader because basically all he does is divide the party and sabotage it. But he is the leading contender for the 2024 nomination. And he has the power to topple Kevin McCarthy in his path to the speakership within like days of the election results this fall, if he feels like it. So where do these results leave us, do you think, in terms of Trump's influence and him going away or just kind of hanging around but being annoying? What do you think? Look, it's Trump's party. And the people you listed, Amy, I mean, think of it, that in order to lose with Donald Trump's endorsement, you have to be hideous. You you know, it's like, well, you know, Trump endorsed 
these ghastly candidates and they actually lost doesn't tell you very much because Charles Herbster, David Perdue, who, you know, probably would never have had a chance anyway. So to say, well, Trump backed these losers, it shows you that in order to lose with Trump's endorsement, you really have to be the worst of the worst of these candidates. Meanwhile, you know, you mentioned, for example, J.D. Vance, who goes from third to winning the Republican primary on Trump's say-so. Right now, you could end up with I mean, I can't even say this out loud because I feel like I'm living in an alternative reality. You could have Dr. Oz as a senator. Herschel Walker, who cannot string a sentence together, who is totally unable to be understood in a normal conversation about anything about politics, could very well become a a U.S. senator. It's no longer a normal political party. It's a weird cult of, you know, paranoids and conspiracy theories. And, you know, again, keep saying people with their fetishes. And I think that's what we're going into. And the party and its faithful, they don't care about this because their object is not to govern. It's to just to destroy. It's just nihilism. And the Republican electeds are so terrified that they're going along with this because what they want to do is keep living in the Emerald City. You know, every time somebody mentions Elise Stefanik, who I guess got floated yesterday as a potential running mate for Trump, every time I see Elise Stefanik, I hear the same thing over and over again. I'm not going back to upstate New York. Josh Hawley, I'm not going back to Missouri. You know, I was made for greater things. And they don't care about if their colleagues are morons and whack jobs and kooks as long as they get to stay there. And again, this that interlock with a GOP base that believes in crazy stuff and a GOP group of electeds who don't believe in anything is incredibly dangerous. And so if anything, you know, there, there are some of these candidates where you look and say, wow, compared to them, Trump's practically a moderating factor, except for his obvious dedication to overturning the government of the United States. (laughs) I mean, it's insane. And so I, I I just want to touch back for a minute to something Linda was talking about with the Democrats unable to face down the crazies in their own party. I don't think the Democrats have really internalized as a party or communicated to their voters that this is a fight for all the marbles when it comes to our constitutional system of government. The Democrats have fallen into that small ball nonsense about are we going to say mothers or are we going to say birthing people? And are we going to fight about the most extreme version of abortion or about the right to have a medical procedure remain legal as it has been for 50 years? I just don't think they're taking seriously as a party or telling their voters to take seriously that we are on the cusp of a major collapse of our democratic system. Hear, hear. All right. I think that the listeners might need to just grab a vodka. So we're going to hold for a moment and listen to a word from one of our sponsors and come right back. All right, my friends, I want to talk with you about Omaha Steaks. They sent me a box of their steaks and franks and burgers. And let me tell you, I am a total fan. First of all, the quality is amazing. I'm pretty particular. I'm very particular about meat. And I don't eat it every day because it's not good for you. But when I eat it, I want it to be terrific. And about three times a week is good. (laughs) Well, with Omaha Steaks, you're going to be inclined to do it maybe even more than that. First of all, it comes in these great vacuum sealed packages so that it's 
so easy to defrost and then put right on the grill. But also the flash freezing seals in all of the juices and the flavor and it tastes so fresh. So that's one thing I love. And the other thing is that the meat is just incredibly tender. So you practically could use a butter knife to cut their fillets. And it's just the perfect, perfect thing for meat lovers of every kind. And since Father's Day is right around the corner, I thought I'd mention that Omaha Steaks has a great promotion. It's called Dad's Want Steaks. So what they ask you to do is to visit omahasteaks.com, beg to differ. So you put all of that in the search bar. It's not at the checkout. It's when you type it into the search bar. If you put beg to differ, you get this special offer. For just $99, this limited time package includes 16 mouth-watering entrees that men are guaranteed to love, like smoky, tender, bacon-wrapped filet mignon, gourmet jumbo franks, and their air-chilled boneless chicken breasts. And for a sweet finish, delicious caramel apple tartlets. They are all fantastic. And as a special gift for my listeners, when you type Beg to Differ in the search bar and order the Dad's Want Steaks package, you'll also get eight free Omaha Steaks burgers. We had them just last night. They were incredible. These burgers are full of bold, beefy flavor, and they are made from 100% Omaha Steaks. So they are steak burgers. And they are now bigger than ever at a whopping six ounces each. So don't wait. Send dad more than just a gift. Send him an experience that he'll love and he can share with you. Go to omahasteaks.com and type beg to differ into the search bar and order the dad's want steaks package. You'll get 16 entrees and four desserts plus eight free Omaha Steaks burgers. Omaha Steaks isn't just steak. It is the best steak of your life, guaranteed. That's omahasteaks.com, keyword beg to differ. Okay, so Linda, we're going to keep on the crazy train. (laughs) I want to just talk to you about the direction of the Republican Party. I'll mention Alabama is very interesting. The party darling of the establishment, Katie Britt, who was chief of staff to retiring Senator Dick Shelby, head of the Chamber of Commerce of Alabama, you know, just really just cookie cutter perfect, uh, was trying to not be an election denier and just sort of stay the course. Mo Brooks, for some reason, after Trump dumped him and unendorsed him, started surging. He gets in a runoff with Katie Britt. And now Mike Durant, the third candidate, hinted the day before the results that if it went to a runoff and he wasn't in the runoff, that he was likely to endorse Mo Brooks. This is very bad news for Mitch McConnell. Tom said it so I didn't have to. Concussions are a serious thing. And Herschel Walker really has trouble putting sentences together and was on Fox trying to talk about the shooting and his words that he strung together have gone viral. We're looking at a series of unserious or unhinged candidates Coming And I mentioned Missouri, Linda, because that primary is in August and you have different people running for president picking different horses. Ted Cruz is with Eric Schmidt, the attorney general, and then Holly wants Vicki Hartzler, the congresswoman. Billy Long sort of somewhere out there hoping he can convince Trump. 
But Eric Greitens is still in the running. And Don Jr. went hunting with him recently. And his girlfriend, Kim Guilfoyle, is Greitens' national chairperson or something. It's not beyond the realm of the possible that Trump ends up picking Greitens. I don't know what Mitch McConnell is going to do about that, but the party's divided, right? So that Holly and Cruz and Mitch McConnell, they can't insist on grownups together as a united front. Where are we heading with this, no matter what role Trump is playing? Well, look, I feel badly about Herschel Walker. I just, as some of our listeners know, suffered a major concussion in January. I'm still dealing with the effects of it. It is not a simple thing. And like Herschel Walker, I have had multiple concussions. This is not anything to sort of joke about. But if he cannot string a sentence together and he has cognitive problems, he's not going to be the best representative for the people of the state in the United States Senate. But whether or not Trump is as big a factor as people you know, would like to think he is. I think some of us have been saying that his influence was waning. I still believe it. And he might get involved yet again in a primary in Missouri and other places. And when he does, he may have some influence. But I think it's not so much Trump that's the factor. It's Trumpism. And I think Mo Brooks is a perfect poster boy for that, because the reason he surged in popularity is he doubled down on Trumpism. He was the most Trumpist candidate. And apparently that plays. And by the way, Mo Brooks is no idiot. I'm not getting a whole lot of political news here in Ireland, but Sky News had an interview with Mo Brooks that they played. And I was sort of impressed at how Well, Mo Brooks could handle himself. Of course, he was speaking lies and nonsense about 8 million votes cast by illegal immigrants in the 2020 election. But he strings sentences together. And some of these people have deep roots. And some of the people that Trump is backing are talented politicians. Trump himself, I think he has to face the fact that he's not going to be able to sail to the nomination without some competitors. I mean, there are clearly a lot of people angling to be the nominee in 2024. And so Trump to me is less the problem than Trumpism is and what it has done to the Republican Party, the way it has distorted the party in foreign policy, the way it has distorted the party on domestic policy, the way it has increased the acceptability of saying outrageous racist things, and making policy decisions that, frankly, harm the party, including anti-business decisions and their immigration policy, I think definitely hurts the economy in the U.S. So I think that's the problem. It's Trumpism, not Trump. So, John, I want to just say, Linda, that I think concussions are terrifyingly serious things. And the fact that he cannot string sentences together about policy is going to come up in the campaign now that he's out of the primary, for certain. He has other things in his past that the Democrats can prey on, but I think he's going to struggle just answering basic questions on policy, and it's going to become an issue about the seriousness of him as a senator. He pulled in the Heisman 40 years ago, but that seems to be the qualification for putting him up as a candidate. John, not all of the 
primaries are done. But when you look at the people that Republicans are putting up, there's going to be Mastriano running for governor in Pennsylvania. That could help the Democratic candidate, Josh Shapiro, there. In other places, this is a wave year, I believe, in the Senate races. States like New Hampshire and Colorado that are not really on the target list could be great opportunities for Republicans. It's still their year. But do you see any races, either the governor's or senator's races, where you see the candidates becoming this X factor that saves the Democrats or Democrats having a great candidate like, I don't know, John Fetterman or Tim Ryan that you think actually can break through? Do you think any of these contests are competitive for the Democrats? Yeah, let me talk about Mastriano first, and then I'll go to the question of Trump's influence. I mean, the number that stood out to me from the Pennsylvania primary in the gubernatorial race was the turnout numbers, because there were 1.3 million Republicans who voted in the primary versus 1.1 million Democrats. That was an increase from the last competitive primaries in 2018 for both parties, but it was a much larger increase for Republicans. It was double the amount that they had in the last primary, double. So that is a big indicator of the amount of enthusiasm, I think, among Republicans. And I think it's a signal that Mastriano should not be underestimated. And so, yes, he's a liability in some respects, but this is going to be a wave election almost certainly. So that could carry him over and I think that's all I'll say about that. As far as Trump's influence goes, I find a lot to agree with from what both Tom and Linda said. And I think Linda's point about Trumpism is really well taken. And I think Tom is right to just sort of be instinctively leaning in the direction of saying this is Trump's party. But I think when you look closely at what's happening, there are some cracks in the foundation of Trump's hold on the party. Whether or not those cracks become anything is the question. And I think, you know, you said we've gone through this last month where you had four pretty big primary election days right in a row. And it was not a great showing for Trump. I definitely think that the Ohio result with Vance kind of getting pushed over the finish line, I think that really did help a little bit insulate Trump from the narrative becoming more and more, you know, he's losing his grip. Because if you had had Herbster after that, and then Georgia, and there was one other in there, I think, that didn't go Trump's way. But if you had had a succession of just all losses, that would have enhanced that. But look, the bottom line is, what does any of this do for encouraging, as Linda talked about, the people who want to run for president in 24 for the Republican nomination? What does any of this do to encourage them closer to that goal? And what does it do to encourage voters to consider them as viable And what does it do to encourage donors and activists to mobilize on their behalf? And I think to Linda's point, there's a lot of fuel in what we're seeing now that I don't think it's tamping it down. In other words, I think there's more oxygen getting into that balloon. And I think over the next month, you're going to have the Jan 6 committee hearings. We'll see what the impact of those is. And then you have a couple other contests over the summer. I think the big one in my mind is the one in August, August 16th, when Liz Cheney's primary takes place. And so that is where I think Trump is now going to direct a lot of his attention and efforts. And I think the Jan 6 committee hearings are going to play a pretty big role 
in how that plays out because Jamie's going to be front and center. She's the vice chair. She foreshadowed how she's going to talk about this. It's fairly compelling, but I can't predict how it'll play out. Could I just briefly jump in? Because I wrote a piece uh, way back in January about what the Democrats could do. The Democrats could choose not to run a candidate in the general election. And Liz Cheney could run as an independent if she loses her primary. And I think she might win. I just wanted to make a quick comment. I don't follow sports. I don't know anything about football and I don't know anything about Walker. So I didn't know until we're all sitting here talking that he has a concussion. My point is that it's indicative of something that you can take someone who literally, you know, cannot finish a sentence, has no political content or knowledge to anything he says, and Trump endorses him and he'll vote Republican and that's good enough. That's the scary part of that whole candidacy. It's not, I, I, God knows I was making fun of, I barely know who Herschel Walker is or was as a football player. But that the more important point is you can take somebody, stand them up, who says, I don't really know anything about anything, but Donald Trump likes me and I'll vote with Republicans. And, you know, means people shrug and go, okay, you got the nomination. Yeah, he has a lot of other baggage. He is a beloved figure in Georgia and Republicans. Remember, Mitch McConnell was n- very nervous about Herschel Walker when Trump threw in with him. And Mitch McConnell's lieutenants were questioning him in public and on Twitter and stuff. And then they came around and decided to endorse him. They believe that the goodwill towards Herschel Walker will overwhelm his liabilities, but they are steep. And he should not give any interviews from now on if he wants to win the election. That's just the end of it. I mean, he should just make appearances at campaigns and stuff. But he's been given a few days to come up with a line about shootings and twice now he's not been able to say anything of any substance. And astonishingly, that would work. Right. That shows you where our politics are. Okay, you know, Trump likes you. Clearly, you can't say anything. You don't know anything. Just be quiet for the next six months you're in. All right, let's take a quick moment and hold on for a quick break before we come back with our close. Whenever you look for news, you may feel forced to choose between echo chambers in mainstream media and conspiracy-obsessed alternative media. That's why you should check out The Lost Debate. It's a podcast and YouTube show for political eclectics who want to escape their media bubbles and engage in good faith with ideas from across the political spectrum. The Lost Debate is hosted by Ravi Gupta, a former staffer for Obama and school principal who founded ARENA, an organization that has trained thousands of campaign staffers, and helped elect hundreds of candidates, Corey Bradford, a political organizer from the Deep South turned TikTok star who once hosted a Fox News radio show, and Ricky Schlott, a Gen Z New York Post columnist and libertarian fighting to protect free speech. They cover the latest news, ideas, and trends that mainstream media overlooks. Instead of being at each other's throats, they focus on bringing new perspectives to the table in constructive debates that sound less like crossfire and more like discussions between real people. Join the conversation. Check out The Lost Debate today. New episodes drop twice a week. Find The Lost Debate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Okay, everyone, we are at the end. It's been a fascinating discussion, and we are going to go to highlights and lowlights And um, we're going to talk first with the lady from Ireland, Linda. I'm here in my ancestral homeland, which will surprise all our listeners, but (laughs) that's where part of my people came from. The only immigrants Um, in my family, I might mention, came from Ireland. All right. So my note today is about an article that appeared in the Washington Post in the opinion section by 
Leon Krauss, George P. Bush could have been the first Latino president, then he turned to Trump. He lost uh, George P., that's the grandson of George Herbert Walker Bush and the son of Jeb and Columba Bush. He is the land commissioner for the state of Texas. He was challenging Kent Paxton, who is the attorney general, and he lost, and he lost really badly. What I think was interesting about this article and why I recommend it, it is because I think we see what Craven kowtowing to Donald Trump does not do for you. It does not really help you. And particularly if you're running against somebody who's a true Trumper, as Ken Paxton is. And the sad thing about this is George P. Bush did have a bright political future. He not only is the scion of this family in Texas, but he's talented, good-looking young kid, done very well from himself. And despite the fact that Donald Trump trashed every member of his family, from his grandfather to his father to his mother to his uncle, did not keep him from kissing the ring. And so I think this is a good lesson. And I would recommend that people thinking of running for office and thinking of throwing their principles out the window, think twice. Amen. John. So I've never done this show before or the highlights and lowlights. So lowlights obviously would have to do with the shooting in Uvalde. And I actually just saw a video today of parents arriving at the school and unable to go into the school. And I will hopefully never forget that footage. And uh, we have five children ourselves. The idea of being in that situation is unspeakable. And it is a glimpse into the depths of hell. So clearly a low light. And um, my prayers are with everyone in that town. The highlights, I think, have to do with how we respond to horrific evil like that. Emily Freeman is on social media. She's an author. She had an Instagram post this week about the fact that we cannot give in to the feeling that we do not have agency and that we have to start with the things that we can do and the things that we can touch and the people that we encounter every day and to be agents of restoration and healing to the things that we touch every day. In that vein, I spoke today to Ibu Patel, who is the founder and president of Interfaith America. His new book is called We Need to Build, and it's about his work in transitioning from somebody who was a critic to somebody who is a builder. He's built an institution. The book is about the need for more of us to be in that frame of mind, and I recommend it highly. And then lastly, my other, I think, highlight or part of how we respond to horrific evil is to prioritize and make time for beauty and the arts. My wife and I went to the Kennedy Center last night and saw five magnificent artists take part in a tribute concert to Joni Mitchell, and it was transcendent. And we are also taking our children to a weekend music festival curated by none other than the band Wilco in Massachusetts this weekend. So that is how we are trying to prioritize beauty in our lives. And I recommend that as well. That was beautiful, John. Thank you so much. And we did not bring up today what the scene was outside of 
the school. There's still these different reports about the way the police yeah. responded, but that is something that obviously can be fixed and needs to be. But everything you said was very, very compelling and moving. Tom. Well, my personal highlight is I'm about to go on vacation for the first time in three years. So I'm like the lady in that commercial smashing the computer and yelling, no canceling. So um, uh, (laughs) I'm looking forward to that. But as a political highlight, I liked that Brad Raffensperger won. I felt like there was a choice, even in Georgia, that you had two guys, one saying, hey, I'll steal the election for Donald Trump. And the other guy saying, you know, I won't do that. And the right guy won. So that to me was kind of made me sit back and say, okay, that's a hopeful sign. I'll do a foreign policy low light, which was Henry Kissinger at Davos, of course, saying that the Ukrainians should trade territory for peace. And, you know, (laughs) it was like, oh man, Uh, first of all, Ukrainian territory is not ours to give. That's up to the Ukrainians. And Zelensky fired back pretty hard and said, Kissinger seems to think he's at Munich instead of Davos, which was <laughs> ouch. But also, of all the people you kind of don't want to hear these lines from, Henry Kissinger's way up on that list. And I thought that that was just, you know, at a time when the Ukrainians are fighting to survive as an independent nation, um, the sage voice of Henry Kissinger telling them to give away territory to Vladimir Putin, I thought was a pretty low moment. Oh, thank you, Tom. <laughs> I actually chose this as a highlight before the shooting because I was so moved by it. I'm recommending to everyone they read a New York Times piece from May the 7th called In Grief is How We Live Now by Dr. Gary Greenberg, a psychotherapist for more than 40 years who lives in Scotland, Connecticut. It's not so much about grieving death as it is a way of life, the familiar that we are now in a state of kind of permanent bereavement. He says, when the American Psychiatric Association added, quote, prolonged grief disorder to its diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders, he was sort of confused by this, but he has come around. He writes, the occasions for grief, prolonged or otherwise, do seem to be multiplying. And there is more to mourn than the loved ones lost to COVID or war or climate change. Coupled with our polarized, paralyzed politics, these calamities seem to threaten the foundations of our cultural, political, and natural worlds. Turning grief into a mental disorder at least draws notice to the enormousness of the losses we face and to the bereavement that underlies all of them, the loss of the familiar. And he has hopes that we can come together, but we didn't to fight a virus. But he says that we need to be reminded that behind the outrage and blame is bereavement, that we may be entering a long age of grief and we have no one to console us for our losses or to build something new with, except one another. So it speaks a bit to what John was saying. I think that, again, no matter where you are on the political spectrum, as John noted at the start of our conversation, we've been through so much change, too much change, too fast, and not a lot of it good, most of it bad. And so I think that it's just a good read about all of us, um, no matter what day it is, whether it's been a mass shooting or a loss of baby formula or whatever's going on, we're all kind of looking around wondering what this new world is we're living in and it's hard. So I recommend that. And I want to thank everyone for a terrific conversation. I want to thank Mona, of course, again, um, for the bulwark for inviting me to guest host today. And I want to thank Tom and John and Linda for joining me. Our producer is Katie Cooper and our engineer and editor is Joe Armstrong and they've done a terrific job. Mona will return next week. Thank you so much for listening. 